talking about precipitation I'm talking Father God, he gave Jesus the nations And he's ruling now, even over pagans One day he's coming back, you just gotta have patience hell, King Jesus Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to Dat Postmo Podcast, the show where no matter how many times the Patriots win the Super Bowl, we still know the gospel will win. <laughs> what? <laughs> that one was only less funny for me because I don't follow sports ball. Sports Honestly, ball. I really don't either, but I just know that everyone hates the Patriots and when they win, so. Oh, really? <laughs> the I don't know that. I didn't even watch the Super Bowl, so. I'm, uh, I-, I follow the football, yeah. Yeah, I follow football, but I'm a I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan diehard, so I don't I don't care about the the Patriots. Eagles, baby. Eagles look good this year, bro. No, it, it's it's a head scratching problem. I'm 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 having anxiety over here with my my with my coach Chip Kelly is doing all kind of craziness. Welcome to that post mill. So are you, an, are you an Eagles fan then, Adam? <laughs> yeah, I, I of course I'm an Eagles fan. I'm a four for four guy. Eagles, Phillies, Flyers, Sixers. Okay, even though you're in New Jersey. Yeah, he lives he lives right across the Benjamin Franklin from Philly. Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. I can almost see it from my house. So I would totally love to jump in on this conversation, but I don't really follow Pokemon, so <laughs> not really sure what the not really sure what the Patriots are, but I guess you know, got to catch them all. <laughs> You're like the Pokemon master of of internet debating, Colin. You like you pull out your Charizard and your <laughs> what? Pikachu. Yeah, I don't know Pokemon at all. You and <laughs> I don't know. I know. I, don't, I, don't I know, know Street Fighter. But, uh, so, oh yeah, I don't know if that's the, the Hadouken. But well, actually, I'm. I feel like I just been beat beaten by Bison over the last. I don't know, couple weeks. The the theonomy debate is really uh, starting to wear me down. Are you still recovering? Yeah, I, I need to recover from the theonomy on the interwebs. I feel like it's been at a fever pitch right now, and sometimes I I, I need to step back from the computer before I throw it. And and unpost mill all the technology that Steve Jobs has given us. <laughs> hey, I need. I'm, I'm about to smash it up that Dispy style. Go that Dispy style and get a Windows phone with a with a Windows PC. <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, well, and, and and smash it. You know that that's like office space. So I've been recovering, uh, and it's almost kind of like a like a, a it brought on like a theonomy Tourette syndrome where I just like all of a sudden in my sleep like scream out Bonson. Rushduni, <laughs> and like I have the I have these fits in the middle of the night where I'm kicking where I'm you know kicking the covers kicking off heretics. And kicking heretics you know I, punching kittens and all that. <laughs> well, stay stay off of Facebook. <laughs> Don't look at uh, anything posted in the pub or any theonomy related uh, group for a little while until. Still, it all kind of dies down a little bit. So am I the only one that's getting all of Adam's subtle references to things that I've said that people have made fun of me for? Or That's hilarious. That's <laughs> Punching hilarious. kittens. <laughs> Punching kittens. I feel like I want to tear out someone's cornrows, too. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> this is all inside baseball. or in, This is inside Pokemon. Funny, for the people who know. Yeah, in, inside Pokemon. Speaking of Pokemon, uh, did you guys see that... Uh, um, I posted that article on datpostmail.com where uh, um, Colin was on Calvinist Batman and talked about theonomy a little bit, but then got into Pokemon and how it was the uh, what is it like the the most dystop the worst dystopian society ever created or that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny. That, that was a good episode. That was the first Calvinist Batman I'd, I'd listened to, so it was it was good. That was the that was the first Calvinist Batman episode I was on. <laughs> well, there you go. 
maybe more to Speaking come. of Calvinist Batman, he actually listened to our first show and he had something to say about it. I just thought I'd share. He said, listen to the first episode. I liked it. Needed a little less heresy, but the non-post-mill sections were really good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> he liked all the dats. Read that one more time. As Calvin is Batman. Um, I'll just read it as Theonomy Thon. <laughs> there you go. No, I already did. Yeah. Cool. Well, we actually had another uh, review from uh, Big Abe Twenty Three, who all you guys might out there might know as Abel Calvo. Um, no idea if I said that name right, but he uh, left us a great review last week saying this is an excellent podcast for anyone who is interested in learning about the gospel of the kingdom. These guys are thoughtful, fun, and bearded. Which I don't know <laughs> how he knew that based on listening to the podcast, but uh, that postmill. Uh, you will learn and be encouraged as you hear the good news of a victorious Savior that is ruling and reigning right now. Take Dominion over iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. Oh, wow. So That's thank great. you for that five-star review. We appreciate it. That was, uh, was very nice. And we, pre- we, we would uh, appreciate if any of you guys who are listening would go on there and rate and review us. Um, Maybe in the future we'll try to think of something we can do for a contest. So if we do, um, anyone who has already posted a review will definitely be included in that. But uh, we encourage you guys to go out there and let people know. Get uh, Let's see if we can catch up to the pub. We're only about a year and a half behind. Uh, and we're uh, uh, how, how, what better way to show that post mill than to overtake uh, Joel Osteen. So let's, uh, let's get some rating and reviewing going on out there, guys. That post mill. What's up, that post mill. Dominion, bro. Dominion. Yeah, this week we're talking about Dominion. That post mail will be right back. Don't you see that Jesus purchased me? See the blood on that mercy seat? As a man, he was born in Bethlehem, but he's from eternity. Now that's Bible. Michael 5-2. You believe he's God? Yes, I do. The only hero to die for the villains that's poetic like Haku. I was pathetic and Welcome back to that post mail. Uh, we are here to talk today about Dominion and specifically the Dominion mandate. Starting in Genesis. So I'm just going to jump right into Genesis chapter 1. This is verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, or the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Now, the interesting thing about this command is that most people don't think that this command is ever actually going to be fulfilled. Most people think that this command was just the way that God set up creation from the beginning, but then after the fall, since that command couldn't be fulfilled, the command itself was revoked. But this is not the case. In fact, God did not give this command in vain. He intended for this command to be fulfilled. That was actually the purpose that he made man. The method he would use to fulfill it would be different than we would suppose from the beginning. But how in the beginning was Adam supposed to fulfill this? God first created the earth as a barren wasteland. Then he turned the wasteland into a, into a garden. And so Eden was a template for how Adam and Eve were supposed to t- take and fill and subdue the earth. 
So they were supposed to spread out, have lots of kids, spread out all over the earth, and make the rest of the earth just like the garden. Take the way, take the wilderness, and transform it into a garden. But because man fell, it became increasingly difficult for him to accomplish this. So let's jump over to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is part of the curse given by God to Adam and Eve for uh, breaking his command to not eat of the fruit that was in the midst of the garden. But in the curse is a blessing in disguise. Here where he is actually cursing the serpent, representing Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And so here we have what we call the Proto-Evangelion, which is the beginning of the gospel. The plan of redemption starts here, and the covenant of grace was instituted with Adam and Eve. Ultimately, would be consummated by Christ in the new covenant, and we'll get there as we walk through this. But now, just this by itself, you might not think, tells us that the command is actually reinstituted to take dominion. Um, and in fact, after this, we see increasing wickedness on the earth uh, going down through the next generations leading up to Noah. And so by the time we get to Noah, he's the only righteous person left on earth. And so he and his family are the only ones that are saved from the flood which destroyed most of the earth. But I'm going to jump right into Genesis chapter 9, and I'm going to read some of this stuff from Genesis chapter 9 because God says a very interesting thing after the flood waters had subsided. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps upon the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I have given you green plants, I give you everything. All of this is actually tying back to the dominion mandate in the original formulation with Adam and Eve. Because he starts off by reiterating the be fruitful and multiply, which is the means by which Adam and Eve were to fill and subdue the earth. And then he also tells them and reminds Noah that the fear of the beasts of the earth will actually be upon them. And so this is a progression of dominion from beforehand. And then he goes on to say, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. So he reiterates, that's in, that's in verse 7, he reiterates the same thing. Then God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God uses the rainbow as the sign of this covenant that he would not destroy the, he would not destroy the earth with uh, water once again. So actually going back to just before chapter 9 of Genesis, when the establishment of the covenant, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither 
will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Notice that the curse on the ground that was given because of Adam and Eve's sin here is begun to be turned back. Never again, He says, never again will I curse the ground because of man. Going on through the succession of covenants, we now come to Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is difficult for some people to see how it's connected specifically to the to the Noahic covenant. But remember that the covenant that God made with Noah was with him and all successive generations of all flesh, all the beasts of the earth, the fish, the birds, everything. And so here we have a more specific blessing that's coming through Abraham that through him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now let's continue forward to a more specific formulation of the covenant in Genesis chapter 17. Starting in verse 1, When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Remember the multiplication that we were talking about back, even at the beginning, and then again with Noah? Here it is again. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, there's that be fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Remember that, kings, that's very important for what's coming up next. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here again, we have a more specific now, and, and a lot of people look at this covenant and see very close ties with the new covenant, because in, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, we're called Abraham's offspring according to the promise, by faith, right? In Abraham's faith, we are his offspring. And that goes back to the covenant made in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 9. Now let's go forward. Now when we come, after after Abraham's descendants had been fruitful and multiplied, and they increased, this happened down in Egypt, actually, because there was a great famine in the land of Canaan, and so they had to actually go down to Egypt for a time. So the beginning of Exodus starts this way. This is Exodus 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So we here, here we see a small fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, which was also a promise to Adam and through Noah to be fruitful and multiply. He act, God actually made sure that Israel was fruitful and multiply just like he promised. Now let's go forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. We know that in Exodus, this is about God saving Israel out of the land of Egypt where they were enslaved, which also is a picture of the gospel. But what is the reason for this covenant that God made through Moses? And here it is in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, in 
the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that is the framework from which God God selected Moses to be the person to lead his people out of Egypt. He did not lead his people out of Egypt just because he was arbitrarily deciding to save them out of slavery, but because he made a promise to their forefathers that he was going to fulfill. And here we come to Exodus chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And this was something that God told Moses to tell the people of Israel. So remember back the promise to Abraham. What was the promise? What would come from him? Kings would come from him. And here, in Exodus chapter 19, the promise of the covenant through Moses to the people of Israel is a re-explanation or a further explanation of how that will take place. The people of Israel are told here that they will be made a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that is tied directly to the Abrahamic promise. And we're going to go forward now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. This is a fascinating thing because everybody knows that the circumcision of the heart spoken of in the New Testament is talking about regeneration, salvation, right? And here, even in the Old Testament, God is promising to circumcise people's hearts. So this covenant that was made through Moses is connected directly to both the Abrahamic promise and forward to the new covenant, uh, maintaining the continuity with that dominion mandate. Now we're going to go forward to 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7. This is the covenant with David. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now remember, Deuteronomy chapter 30, what was said? I will put these curses on your foes and the, these enemies that persecute you. Back to Second Samuel chapter 7. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as for, formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with stripes of of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now remember, the promise to Abraham was what? Kings shall come from you. And here is King David. After he finally 
finally united the people of Israel once more, he, there were still dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of people who were still fighting a civil war, but he had finally taken the throne once again after all the enmity that had come from the situation with Saul. And what does God promise him? That he will give him rest and peace and that a descendant would come from him who would sit on the throne forever. And that descendant we know is Jesus. And that's this, that is the true fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that kings would come from him and that there would be a kingdom of priests made through Moses and then here through David, the king who is, who will sit on the throne forever. And just a reiteration of that same promise is in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And we know that that is the throne of King Jesus. Also, in the Old Testament, there are many, many prophecies of the coming new covenant. But we're just going to look at one for the sake of time. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And so here we see the promise of the ultimate fulfillment of all previous covenants. All previous covenants had their ultimate and consummate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the continuity here is highlighted in the internalization of the law. That circumcision of the heart is the same thing as that internalization of the law. So that promise through Moses is also fulfilled in the new covenant. Now, when we get to the new covenant in Jesus's blood, he who fills, fulfills the final sacrifice of that was foreshadowed in all the Old Testament sacrifices, the fascinating thing about Jesus is that he's referred to about the, as the second Adam. Now, we understand that in Adam all die and in Christ all are made alive. So as a federal head, he saves those who are in him. Whereas in Adam, everybody was condemned by his sin. But everybody who's in Christ is saved by his righteousness. That's what it means for him to be the second Adam. But that's not the only thing that it means for him to be the second Adam. Because as we've talked about before on Dat Postmill, we know that Christ is currently seated and reigning, ruling, separating sheep from goats little by little throughout history putting all of his enemies under his feet, taking dominion. He defeated death at the cross, and he continues to take dominion. Now, how do we know that the dominion mandate continues in validity in the New Testament? Is there anything that we could imagine that would make sense for us? Well, what was Adam supposed to do in the garden? He was supposed to work the ground with his hands, be a gardener, essentially, but to advance his gardening from just the Eden to the whole earth, fill the earth and subdue it, right? So by working the ground with his hands, he was fulfilling the work of taking over the world by work. And Jesus also takes over the world by his work on the cross. But that connection of the garden is not lost in the new covenant. Because you remember when the women went to the tomb and they asked where Jesus was, who did they think that Jesus was? Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And here's what it says next. 
supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell him where you, tell me where you've laid him away, and I will take him. She didn't recognize Jesus because he had been so disfigured at his crucifixion, she, she hardly recognized him. But why would she be supposing him to be the gardener? Was it just because he happened to be there the day after the Sabbath, walking around in the garden? Or was it because he was acting as a gardener? Why would you suppose somebody is a gardener unless they were actually gardening, working the ground with his hands? And so Jesus is showing that he is actually fulfilling the dominion mandate by his rule to transform the earth from a wilderness into a garden. But he does that through changing people's hearts and winning people to him. And he will ultimately win by having victory over all the earth and when all nations turn to him. And how does he take dominion now? He does so through his church, through the preaching of the gospel. So just like Adam was given a helpmeet, his wife, his bride, to help him in taking dominion over the earth by creating physical descendants to spread out and continue the work, Christ's bride, the church, works alongside him through his power, through the power of the gospel, to create spiritual descendants that fill the earth. And so here is Matthew chapter 28 once again, verses 18 to 20. I'm sure you've heard this a lot. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Conversion there is the first step. Disciple all the nations. Conversion is the first step. Baptizing them. Teaching them to be obedient, right? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that's what dominion is all about. We'll be right back with that post mill. Even though we still on earth, uh -huh. in heavenly places we're seated. Woo. Ephesians 2, you should read it. Uh -huh. It's only because we're in Jesus. Yeah. Well, I don't think some believe it. So. And I don't think that they see it. They, they think the church is defeated. What? Well, why we call him King Jesus? I can't imagine Welcome back to that Postmail Podcast. And what we want to talk about now is I, I put up a mini cast called Taking Dominion on our website. And the reason why I, I, I took that topic and I want, wanted to flesh it out a little bit was... Someone coming from the outside who may not understand Dominion theology and postmillennialism might hear the phrase taking dominion all the time and kind of wonder what we're talking about. A lot of Christians will just gloss over that phrase as they read it in the Bible, and they might not be speaking the same spiritual language as we are. And and so we, we kind of use that term jokingly, like taking dominion over this and that, um, you know, over the Internet or over over bacon <laughs> Or whatever, you know, just just anything, just kind of like in a joking fashion. But in reality, what it's what we're talking about is helping uh, the created order, ourselves, um, anything really that's in this world, put it more under the feet of Christ, and so that Christ has dominion over it through the authority that He has shared with us. And so the dominion mandate is really something that never went away from from the beginning from the Garden of Eden, where we're supposed to be taking care of the earth. We're supposed to be exercising as God's subordinate ruler um, authority over the created world, over things that oppose God. And so we, when, we, when we relate to areas of life, whether it's family, business, the arts, whatever it may be, uh, civil government, we take dominion over those things 
um, and put and cause them to be in subjection to Christ and make them look more like how they should look and and help conform them to the image of Jesus. What I'm afraid of is somebody coming in and and thinking that we're we're create we're creating something new or it, there's this new idea that that's not found in scripture anywhere and really it's a very biblical idea for us to be to be working toward of of creating a a world in which Christ is glorified and he's honored because the dominion mandate it, it just didn't go away now that Christ has come like we we still work there's the, the all through the new testament Jesus talks about the laborers and it's not something that we do in our own power, but it's something we do through the power of the Holy Spirit. But yet we, we still are working. We still are, are doing things. And, and I think one of the drawbacks to pessimistic eschatology is that there is a disincentive to work. Now, there are a lot of amillennial people, dispensational people, premillennial people that work hard at what they do. And, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But the reality is the fact that if you are expecting defeat, it it's just necessarily is going to affect how you how you see the world, how you see events that happen in history, how you see your mission. Like if you're seeing that just once in a while we're gonna get some new converts, it really doesn't give you this drive to want to to work hard to see the fruits of your labor. It, like I, I it just can't. If you think that if you think that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you really cannot get excited about about missions and about the possibility of taking over, you know, in the name of Christ and taking over so that you're in the one in power, but so that all knees are bowed to Jesus Christ. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a positive, hopeful mes- message that's grounded in the reality of scripture. Yeah, I totally agree with what you said, Adam. Um, it reminds me of something that James White always says, um, just that theology matters. And I've, I've used that a lot in my life now too, because I, I think that as I see people who have uh, like a pessimistic eschatology, it, it affects the way that they, that they, that they just, they do life the way they obviously evangelize. But um, you get more people like, I remember uh, in a job I had several years ago, I came across a lady who, when I, I mentioned, you know, that I, that I had, I, I think I was having my first kid. And I just remember her saying that, you know, I, I she was a, a Christian. She's like, I could never bring into a, a kid into a world like this. And just the idea that, um, that that could take over having that understanding of the world would completely change the way that you live and, and, you know, have a family and do things like that. It's, it's huge the way, you know, why even, why even evangelize if, you know, the Lord's going to be coming soon. And, um, I'm just not, you know, especially as a, a reformed person who has that pessimistic mentality, um, and even maybe isn't completely understanding what reformed theology is, which I see a lot of people like that, um, saying, well, you know, God's going to save his elect. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. There's no sense getting out there. It's dirty out there. It's scary. It's crazy people. I'm just going to, you know, stay in my bubble, stay with my family, read left behind and just wait for the Lord to come back. But you know, that, that just, it affects your life so much. If you, if you get your theology wrong, especially when you're talking about end times, you just always pointing at, Oh, there was 400 earthquakes last week. Oh, things are just getting bad. And it, it just, it overtakes your, your conversations with everybody, you, you talk about those things more than anything else instead of, you know, growing the kingdom and focusing on, on long-term things. I remember Doug Wilson mentioned, uh, I think it was like a year ago when I listened to one of his sermons, they were in the process of planning on building a church. And uh, he, in one of his sermons, he addressed what they were kind of doing in, 
um, and how they wanted to build and things like that. And he said, if you look back at the churches, you know, of ages ago, they built them to last. They built them. They're still around, you know, in Europe and all over there. They're just hundreds and hundreds of years old. These churches are, and they're still there. They're, they're, they're beautiful. And they're just, they, they built them to last and to glorify God and to honor him. And now you see like, what are people building? Like they're just these small things that, you know, that they're not building them with intention that it'll be around, you know, who knows what this church plant will plant will last. It'll just, it might just fade away. And not that there's anything wrong with, you know, renting a space for a while, but you know, being smart with money. But when you're, when you're building a facility, it's, they're not building them with stone with, you know, that these are going to be around a thousand years from now. So I, I think definitely the, your, your theology will impact the way you live your life in, in every possible way, especially when you're talking about eschatology. Yeah. And, and Jeff Durbin mentioned that exact same thing in his sermon entitled, now that we've been left behind at the God government and culture conference it's real that that's a really really good sermon if you haven't seen it maybe we can post a link to it called now yeah. that we've been left behind just just search in left behind jeff durbin it's the first thing that comes up on youtube i'll put that link in the in the description thanks and he he talks about the fact that he was in that exact place where he was heavily involved with dispensational um left behind type of eschatology and wasn't even making long-term plans because that's how much it affected his his thinking and he, he took it one step further in that talk. He said he referenced the, the quote by Dr. James White about about um, theology matters. And he says he takes it one further. Eschatology matters. And it matters because, like, for, for most people who are post-mill or Reconstructionists, we're not just trying to, to change just people's souls, but, like, it influences all areas. It influences government. It influences the family. It, it influences the church. It influences business culture, arts, it, it touches everything. And so if you're in a non taking dominion kind of posture, then you're willing to concede lots of stuff to the enemy. You're, you're willing to concede many different realms, whether it's politics or just even what happens in your local elections, you know, you're willing to concede that because that's not really that important where it is important, maybe not the most important thing, but it is still something that still needs to be put into into subjection under Christ's feet. Yeah, I think, man, one of the one of the biggest reasons eschatology matters so much is exactly like you were saying, like it affects how we live our life. And I think less than discouraging people from working altogether, it discour and I'm not talking about working in general, I mean specifically work for the kingdom. Rather than discouraging people from working in general, it makes their work short-sighted because if you mm -hmm. think Jesus could come back any moment um, or this is very close to the end as as some dispensationalists would say if you think Jesus is coming back very soon then what's the point of making long-term plans for the kingdom what's the point of laying the groundwork for something that would take 500 years to accomplish if we don't have that much time left and so when we look at you know some horrible pagan culture that's just completely backwards from from the way that uh from the way that you know the gospel teaches us that life should be you i mean there's so much work that needs to be done to turn everything around i mean just saving people's souls that's that's only the beginning you can't you can't it's like now that we've saved your soul we need to deal with how you're living your life and how the way you're living your life should affect the way that you do business, the way that you 
work with your family at home, the way that you raise your kids, the way that it affects every area of life. Yeah. And because it affects every area of life, ultimately you'll see societal change on a, on a large scale, but it requires a lot of groundwork and it requires, you know, putting your hand to the plow and not turning back. And there are, there are some people like Gary North gets up at like three or four o'clock every morning to write because he spends the vast majority of his day writing and he doesn't make any money off of the stuff that he writes. Like very, very, very little of it is published in paper form that you people can go buy. Most of it is available for free on the internet. And he has been working in a particular business fashion so that he can support himself in his writing career so that he doesn't have to depend on other people. But he, he will admit to you that he will never see the fruits of his labors because the fruits of his labors are so far in the future because the groundwork that he laid is so thick and will take so much time for everybody to kind of think through that it's, it's going to take a while before we get to the point in time where he actually sees some sort of change in the world around him. Hmm. But we have to be working to lay that sort of groundwork. And in fact, going back to the dominion concept, we think about all the advances in science and technology, you know, being able to go to outer space and fly to the moon and all sorts of different stuff like that. That sort of technology advancement didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't like a whole bunch of secularists got together and said, oh, let's, uh, you know, let's start working on science for the fun of it, because that seems like something really, really good and useful. That's the way that secularists tend to think now, but it's because most of those secularists have come out of a Christian culture that has been created by the advancement of the gospel in the Western world. And originally, the first people who started on advanced scientific theory, you know, um, I mean, a thousand plus years ago, the whole purpose behind it was to understand the way that the world works so that we can fulfill the dominion mandate. Yep. The whole scientific method and all scientific theory, the goal was never, the goal of science was never to conclude truth because scientific theories are by definition false. They, they, they are not deductive argumentation. It's always inductive and induction doesn't conclude truth. But science is still useful in a pragmatic sense because it models reality in a way that we can understand it. And if we can understand it better, then we can make better use of it for the glory of God. And that's why people started doing science in the first place. And that's why we have such advances in science in the Western world as compared to tribal places where the gospel has never broken through yeah, yet. Think of Sir Isaac Newton and, and the advancements yeah. that he's created. And think about it. Uh, the Chinese invented uh, fireworks and gunpowder, and that's pretty much it, and, and calligraphy. <laughs> We've, in the West, have invented literally almost everything that is of use and of value. And even in the United States, even a country, I mean, that we've we've been on this in this continent for about 400 years and as a, as a country proper, 225, 30 years, something like that. And, and look at the, the amazing, amazing things. We're talking about electricity, television, internet, going to the moon in just a short period of time. Clean running water, clean running water by itself is one of the greatest advancements in technology. There are still places in the world where you can't drink the water that comes out of the ground. Yeah, and that that's what vexes me so much about when I'm having internet debates with people who think, how come you think the world's getting better? I mean, take a look at ISIS. They're, they're cutting people's heads off. Like you're typing this from an iPhone in an air-conditioned... Halfway around the world. 
<laughs> we're sitting in a we're sitting in air conditioned work environments at like ten thirty in the morning, you know, on your break or when you're supposed to be working, talking on an iPhone and debating the merits of of theonomy or, or whatever you're doing. Like this, like it's just so it's so ludicrous to think that the world has gotten any kind of in any way worse at all. But again, we don't we don't exegete the news or technology, even though it's fun to do, and that's why we have the the title that post mail. But ultimately, we look at what Scripture says, and Scripture says that all enemies will be placed under His feet, and the last enemy right. will, to be destroyed will be death. And and it's not that it's not that all the advances in science and technology and medicine and all those sorts of things are themselves what the goal of the world getting better. Obviously, the goal of improving things is not technology, but rather saving souls. Rather than the goal being technology, technology is actually a product of changed lives. Because changed lives and changed hearts, which are transformed by the gospel, ultimately transforms, as we were talking about, the way that you do business, the way that you work, and when you do all things for the glory of God, and in order to advance the kingdom, uh, we have more better technology, better medicine, all those sorts of things comes as a result. Yeah. I mean, even think about, like, look at our president as much as we can uh, say against him. He's, he's a family man. He's got a wife who he's faithful to. He's got kids that he loves. That's different than a thousand years ago when it was a king who had a thousand prostitutes at his feet and was slaughtering kingdoms to take over, you know, to bring his kingdom throughout the world. Like it, it's the world is a completely different place than it was before. No matter, even though things are not necessarily always going well, but uh, things are a lot better. Hashtag Dat Dominion. <laughs> we'll be right back with Dat Post Mill. John's going to talk to us about Lord of the Rings. Well, why we call him King Jesus? Why? I can't imagine how folks feel. They don't know that this host real. They don't know about Post Mill. His enemies are just roadkill. And that's so real. Yeah, that's so real. Christ Jesus is dominating like Carmelo at Oak Hill. And this ain't high school. Welcome back, everybody, to that Post Mill podcast. We hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, on this segment, we just want to look, first of all, at a couple things. Uh, Matthew 28. Matthew 28 is a very popular text. Uh, verse 16, we have the Great Commission. And I just want to read that for us. Now, the 11 disciples, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I want to connect another text in Matthew, which you might wonder why am I connecting it, but I'll, don't worry, I'm going to tell you. But we have the temptation of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew. The temptation of Jesus, though, comes directly after the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is baptized. He's brought in the waters. He's declared to be God's son. And then we see after his baptism, he is led into the wilderness. And for centuries, the church fathers and up until modern times have shown many aspects to this understanding of Matthew. But one of them which really I think is very important for us is to understand is that when we are baptized, and we're not going to get into a lot about baptism, but when we are baptized, we truly join the Jesus movement. We become commissioned as a member of the community and kingdom 
of God. Baptism does not save your soul. It does not wash away your sins, but it is necessary in order for you to join the movement of Jesus, to be uh, to join the church as the sign of the covenant. Now, what we see in uh, it, directly after Jesus joins, uh, is, it receives the sign, is baptized, that he is sent into this wilderness. It's a little bit different for us, but one thing's for certain that we can relate with Jesus is that when you are baptized, you are also sent into a wilderness. We all are. We're sent to a, a world uh, where there's a struggle between the kingdom that has come and the kingdom that will come, this already not yet tension. We are living in an age in which there seems to be this struggle. And if it feels like there's a struggle, if it feels like it's a little difficult at times, it's because it is. And, I th- and we have Matthew 4 to really help us. We see that Jesus was able to defeat Satan. Uh, there's an article written by yours truly, actually, on that post mail, which talks about how this temptation in the wilderness, uh, where Jesus is tempted by Satan, Jesus later on looks back on this temptation and says, you know what? I bound the strong man so I can plunder his house. So Jesus does a lot of victorious things, a lot of works, a lot of wonders um, in Jerusalem and in this area because of this victory over Satan and this temptation. And you also can have this victory. You also can be like Jesus. Now, what I mean by that is that we all have to make a choice. We have, we have to choose whether we want to be like Israel, who was in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? They were in the wilderness because they did not believe the gospel, Hebrews 4.2. They did not believe it. They, didn't, they, they were fearful of the giants and of the walls. They forgot about the power of the God who just delivered them from Egypt. So they would not enter his rest until the next generation who was led by Joshua. So anyway, all that to say... Just a really, this is, guys, forgive me, this is going to be a rough transition, but if we look at these texts, the Great Commission, where we have a, a, all, all authority is given to his church, his apostles were given this authority to baptize and to commission uh, the elders and the pastors and leaders of the church for generations and generations to go forth to do what? To make disciples of every nation. This is also connected to Romans 1, where we see that Christ who defeated death itself because of that defeat does that resurrection over death he what was worthy to be called the son of god and then so what was the goal now now that death is defeated or that he is resurrected what's that mean that means that the obedience of the nations is next on the list according to paul's gospel in the beginning of romans and so we see this practical thing with jesus who is commissioned to begin his kingdom ministry the first thing he publicly announces after this is the kingdom of god is here is that he has to go through a wilderness. And we have to go through a wilderness as well. Well, I believe that J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the author of The Lord of the Rings, had this in mind as well. Now, I want to tell you this. If all you've done is seen the movies of Lord of the Rings... Colin, have you seen the movies? Yep. Dustin, have you seen the movies? I have. All right, I'm just going to ask that. I'm not going to ask this other question because I don't want to put anyone on blast. But if you want to volunteer the information, that's up to you. (laughs) Everyone has seen the movie, but who's read the books? I read the book. Because the books... All right, good. Colin has read the books. The books have a completely different take. And Colin, I, I don't know how long it's been since you've read, but the, 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 third, the, the third, if we don't count The Hobbit, the third of The Lord of the Rings, the, the Return of the King, how does that story end in the book? I don't remember. It's been too long. Absolutely. Well, it's, it was a long time for me, and I just read the books again uh, last year, and I, I was really um, kind of surprised. 
I don't like the movies anymore, not because the movies aren't good and not because the movies um, aren't really entertaining and I still have the movies and whatever. But the reason I have a problem with the movies now is because the story is completely different. You see, if a story ends, when uh, the movies, the story pretty much ends with Aragorn, uh, Aragorn on the throne. The, the, right, the return of the king has come and the, the ring has been destroyed. And so, so what's that mean? That means happily ever after, according to the movies. Am I right, gentlemen? Am I wrong on that? Or yeah, right. So everything's good. The hobbits are still the hobbits are still hobbits, right? They're still like this playful, probably wondering where they're going to eat their third breakfast. Like you know, they they miss their hobbit holes kind of people. Now I bring that up because in the books, J.R.R. Tolkien wants it to make a few things clear. One, he wants us to be clear that the hobbits have transformed. The hobbits are no longer the hobbits that we see in the beginning. In the Fellowship of the Ring, the hobbits have become battle-hardened, wise leaders and warriors. They're no longer searching for comfort, but for justice. And I think Tolkien, uh, the master writer that he is, makes it very clear through the character development that this is what he's getting at. Because there is a chapter, the second to the last chapter of the entire saga is called The Scourging of the Shire. And I just want to read something here. Uh, the Scourging of the Shire... Basically, actually, I lied. Before I read, uh, the scourging of the Shire is a chapter where the the hobbits go back home. They want to go home, back to Hobbington, back to the Shire. Uh, when they get to the Brandywine, which is that that river, they notice that the they come up to the the bridge has a gate on it. It's locked, which is very unhobbit like. And from this point on, they what they run into is that the Shire has also, just like the rest of Middle Earth, been taken over by this darkness. It's been taken over by this dark power. And so they think that they're leaving this battle, but what we don't understand with the movies, if we read the books, we see that their battle was just beginning for their home. And so this chapter, The Scourging of the Shire, is basically Frodo and company having to go and retake their home. We could call it a cultural mandate. They want to restore the, 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 the Hobbit or the Shire, Hobbington. They want to restore the culture. They want to bring liberty and justice that the Hobbits were known for having. Another way to say it is it's a dominion that they, re, in, that they retake the earth. And Colin has done a great job of showing us that, that all along, that there was a cultural mandate given in Genesis and it was never rescinded in the New Testament. The gospel actually restates it in a way reimagines it, wants to internalize it with its with, with the law of God in our hearts and, and give us a passion for it. So we do that with the arts. Matter of fact, Marcus Pittman gives a great talk about the Christian and culture. I uh from the from the God God Government and Culture Conference, I recommend it. But I want to read the very last little segment here of and segment, don't be scared. I don't mean segment, I mean like a couple sentences. But the very last segment of the scourging of the Shire, which is the second to the last chapter. All right. So what we see, and that's the end of that, said Sam. You guys remember Frodo's Sam, right? A nasty end, and I wish I needn't have seen it, but it's a good riddance. Now remember, they just battled an entire army of sheriffs. They found out that Saruman is actually hiding out in, in, in the Shire. I don't want to give any spoilers. You haven't read it, but hopefully this whets your whistle. It's a very exciting end to a story that the movie just really fails in. But I say it's good riddance. And the very last end of the war, I hope, said Mary. I hope so, said Frodo, and sighed, the very last stroke, but to think that it should fall here at the very door of Bag End. Among all my hopes and fears, at least I never expected that. 
I shan't call it the end till we've cleared up the mess, said Sam gloomily. And that'll take a lot of time and work. Tolkien reminds us in The Lord of the Rings, not the movie, the books. Tolkien reminds us that it takes a lot of work to undo the mess that happens in the garden. The evil and the sin that has come in through the breaking of covenant, through the transgression of God's law, the, the introduction of evil in all types and manners of wickedness. These things don't just go away overnight. And that's my problem with dispensational eschatology. These things take work. God is not a wizard. He's better. He's God. He does not work through a magic wand saying, be gone evil. He works sovereignly as he wills through his decrees. And he is decreed to do this work through his spirit who inhabits his people. This is clear in scripture. There is no possible way except through hermeneutical eisegesis and acrobatics to get around the fact that you, listener, whether you're a pastor or a postal worker, have a commission to take dominion. Or if you don't like the word dominion, I know that's fine. At my church, we call it a mandate to engage and influence culture, to bring the culture to the gospel. And the gospel, as we've discussed before, is not just forgiveness and afterlife. The culture is, Hebrews 4.2, the same thing that was preached to Israel in Numbers 13 or Deuteronomy 1, which is referenced in Psalm 95. So we need to think about these things, American church, because it seems that we have not learned from our hobbits, friends. We have not learned from the story that we say we love so much. And the movies are a big part of that because we as Americans don't read like we used to. But we need to remember that if we really want the dark power to go away, we can't just destroy a ring. We have to go back to our neighborhoods. We have to go to our communities. We have to go to our spheres of influence and be light and salt, Matthew 5. We're a city on a hill that should not be hid. We're a light that cannot be placed under a bushel or under a basket. The law of Christ has not been abolished by him. It has been established and internalized in our hearts. May we love his law. May, may we open our mouths and gasp because we are desperate, because we crave his word, Psalm 119, 131. So anyway, gentlemen, um, whether we've read The Lord of the Rings or not, I, I, I thought that would just, I, I was just struck by that because I just recently reread that and I'm reading through it with my, with my son, who's way too young to remember. But I was really struck by that, that the movies don't even go there and that there is really this dominion, not just a ma- not, not just the mandate shown in Lord of the Rings, which we see all throughout it, but even the hobbits, after all this bloody fighting and all this amazing things that they have done, they come home expecting to be able to relax. But what they realize is that the battle was just beginning. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Radical, dude. Yeah, and it's it's true if we look at scripture, too, that we know that Christ already won the victory. Mm-hmm. but we're still waiting for him to consummate the victory at the end of history by the resurrection of the dead and the mm-hmm. consummate destruction of death. So he's defeated death and that he will destroy death. But between now and then, what's he doing? He's ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Well, like any king, he has a agenda. He has a rebellion to squall. Yeah. He has a law to establish. Yep. And enemies to put under his feet. Amen. But Colin, man, that's kind of harsh, bro. What? Yeah, you got to love people. We got to love them. Well, see, that's the funny thing is how does Christ primarily put enemies under his feet? There's two ways he puts enemies under his feet. He he judges pagans. They uh, they reap what they sow to their own destruction or they're converted. Nineveh. 
That's right. Yep. Mm. Cool. I got. To, I found some cool quotes on uh, from Rush Dooney on Dominion. It was actually a YouTube video, but uh, I just I kind of transcribed a lot of his quotes because it was just really good. But he was just saying, "We do not believe in something forced on somebody from top down." It's kind of practically speaking. Every Christian must work to bring every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ. And we're not gaining control dictatorially. The state, uh, you know, forcing people to go to church and forcing them to see their prayers. I hear that a lot, specifically with theonomy. You know, what are you going to, are you just going to kill people if they, if they don't go to church or if they're not, you know, obeying, you know, exactly what Christians should be doing? But it's not the state forcing people to do that. But ex- the exercise of dominion versus being dictatorial. Jesus said, Gentiles love to lord it over people, but let it not be so among you. He who is greatest, let him be servant of all. We are ministers of Christ and we serve. We try to meet humans, human needs in the world. Uh, we try to be faithful to God by fulfilling his law word. Love is fulfilling the law. Love It's putting the love of God into force. And the love of man is manifested by being faithful to God. And that's very different from using an army and police force telling people how to act. And to take it a, a kind of a little different direction, mm, the distinction is set forth between Christianity and Islam. Because Paul says, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, who is by faith a son of Abraham. Rush Juni made an interesting point that Muhammad took these words of Paul to oppose Christianity. Christianity, Because he said, he is a Muslim who is one outwardly. Only outward compliance, keeping a few rituals and then uh, a coercive order. Islam doesn't care what's in your heart. But our faith doesn't operate that way. God requires that it begins with regeneration and the gift of the Spirit. And then the extension of that into every area of life. The dominion the Lord has over us, we are to manifest in our lives over every area where he's called us. And that doesn't mean acting like Muhammad, saying externals will satisfy God. We work from the inside out. The gospel, changing hearts. Also, practically speaking, we have a responsibility in politics to exercise dominion by our vote, by holding office and getting godly men into office, by limiting the powers of the state and making the state a servant of the Messiah rather than the Messiah, by seeing to it that the state in a very limited sphere exists to provide uh, justice or righteousness, that in every other sphere we take over responsibility as individuals. We cannot complain about welfareism if we as Christians do not remedy it. We cannot complain about state power when we have not exercised Christian power. I just think he was spot on with that. I thought that was great, just thinking about what our responsibility is and what that looks like. And even comparing that to Islam, you know, especially with theonomy, getting compared to Sharia, it's just preposterous when you look at the root of where things start, the foundation, with the gospel looking at the heart versus Islam forcing it from top down. You need to be doing these things. Um, it's a completely different foundation that, that they're starting on. Definitely. Period. The end. We'll be right back with Dat Postma. We're going to talk about some uh, practical ways to uh, put dominion into practice. Psalm 2 and 12, uh-huh. kiss the son of perish. If you're waiting for him to come and reign in your an era. On the throne of David, the Savior's already there. This is something that some in the church are not aware of. Welcome back to that Postmill Podcast, everyone. It's been an exciting show. We've talked about, man, we've talked about Dominion. We've talked about the Lord of the Rings, why the book is better than the movie. 
And Colin uh, led us through and, and showed us through covenant. The goal of covenant is actually the restoration of the world is dominion. Be fruitful and multiply was never taken away from us. It actually go forth to the nations and make disciples uh, is d- directly connected. But I want to encourage you, maybe hopefully you're thinking even now, what can I do? As just a Christian here in America, what can I possibly do to take dominion? Well, I'll tell you, and not me, but the scriptures, join a church. That's how you begin. You see, God didn't promise all authority to whatever ministry decides they want to do the work of the gospel. No, he promised all authority to the apostles who established his church, his spirit-filled people who have faith in him and who follow the apostles' teaching and who partake of the sacraments. This is where the authority is, and this is where the Spirit of God is. Therefore, this is where the power is. So if you want to obey Christ, and that's what it really is, it's a mandate, a cultural dominion mandate. It's what it means to be human, to be honest, if we really want to go, if we go all the way back to Eden. So again, I want to say a verse that we've talked about before, but in Hebrews 10, because we talk, we, I, I meet a lot, a lot of people. I know Colin and Dustin and Adam can probably say the same thing. A lot of people who are Christians and they want to do the work, but man, they just don't like that church thing. Well, let me let me just let you know, hopefully you like that Bible thing. Because the Bible in Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That sounds good to everyone, right? A clean Mm -hmm. conscience, our sins washed away by the the high priest of heaven. Everyone's like, amen. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Again, we say, amen. I believe I've, I've heard Joel Osteen read that verse. Remember that God is faithful. His promises, he'll deliver them. Well, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together or not neglecting the assembly, the church, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day Drawing near, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, that is not uh, a Joel Steen verse, I admit. That is not a very feel-good passage. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. Um, but the point is clear. God has, set a, has established a standard. He has established an ethic a kingdom, a law, and this law, and it doesn't even matter if you would be Reconstructionist or not, but the reformational understanding of the law is that he has established it for our light, for our life, for our guidance. And here, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament 
talks about how important it is to f- obey Christ and what? And serve the church. Do not forsake the assembling together. The church. This is where everything really hinges on you, Christian. If you really want to obey the gospel, then you have to drop your pride. You have to forget about your... Listen, you can't stand before... You can't reject God's people who we died for because they kind of offended you in the past. I, that just that just doesn't work. It just isn't good. You can't not go to church because there's hypocrites there as if that somehow justifies your hypocrisy. We can't do that. <laughs> we have to uh, understand the standard that God has established. And if I can just be positive as well, and this is all positive and I'll prove it. There is a great blessing. Listen, everything that we like that we read from verse 19 to 22, that new and living way, right? That sacrifice we have, that priest that we have who has gone before us. Man, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that good news? It's great news. Mm-hmm. It's part of being a part of the church. So here's what I encourage you to do. And you can. this is a practical step that all of us can do right now. And, and if you think, whoa, John, calm down. Here's why I'm so passionate about this. Because I spent a decade of my life as a Christian thinking that the church wasn't really important. And I will tell you, if privately you want to email me, I have scars. I have a story. And it was pretty much a, a, a lot of suffering and consequences because I neglected the assembling of believers. I did not take the sacrament. I didn't think baptism was that big a deal. I didn't have elders. I didn't hear the word of God. I wasn't like Acts 2.42 in that passage till the end of that chapter in a day-by-day movement and community, having all things in common for the sake of the kingdom. And there is great consequences for this. So yes, I am passionate about this. But you know what? I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners out there, all hundred, a little less than, of, of you, um, and that's going to grow, that post mill. Tell your friends. But I know that there's some of you out there who are listening to me who can feel me, who relate with me on that. Because this is an epidemic in American Christianity. We wouldn't have to really say this like this 50 years ago. But the fact that 30% of Americans, as opposed to the 80s, 80%, say that they go to church on a regular basis, man, we need the church to first of all realize that they really want to see God's kingdom, if they really want to be a part of it, if they really want to see these promises and all these, you need to be committed to the church. You need to support it with your time, with your resources, with your mulag, with your dinero. You need to put your family in there instead instead of just trusting the state to raise your kids as if they're not going to become secular if you do that to them. Come on. We need as a church to wake up and become a part of this culture of the kingdom. It's not just listening to a Bible study on TV on Sunday mornings. I had, and I'm like, man, I might get in trouble for this. I wasn't expecting to share this, but I have a good friend of mine who, and, and listen, if you're listening, baby girl, you know I love you and you know who you are. I'm not going to say you are, but we've talked about this. She, she, she thinks that it's okay to not be really that involved with the church and that she can still get certain benefits. And then when, I, when I'm at Yogurt Mountain getting ice cream with my family, I get a call from her, which I answer, and she has this great idea how we can, how we can have a hotline, a 1-800 number, where, where we have a staff, maybe how cool would it be, where people can call an 800 number and they can get Bible study on the hour and advice and all this stuff. And I'm just on the phone. I'm like, listen, 
that's the church. That's, that's what the exactly church is what for. the church is. If you join the church, you won't have to call an 800 number. I've, I've got a hotline and it's my pastor's or my elder's number on my phone. Yeah, it's a, it's a cell phone number. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I just want to uh, – everyone out there, we love you at that post mill. We, we all come from different – we all have different journeys here uh, as you get to know us more. Um, but I have that journey. I know what it is. Basically, the only thing that you can really become good at if you're not going to church, if you're not a member – I mean – accountable serving a leadership is antinomian that's the only way you can go that's not an insult that's just exactly what else where if you don't have the sacrament and you don't have the elders and you don't have the teaching what do you have you have yourself which is man that heart is desperately wicked who can know it right so we need to just uh understand that we need the church and the church needs us man the church is made better by you as well, because the church is in need of people who are dedicated to the mission of Jesus. Amen. So not only will you be getting fed and served what you need, but you will be serving and feeding as well. Anyway, guys, do you have anything anything to say before we close out? Colin, Dustin? Yeah, I want to give a shout out to my church. I go to City Life Church. It's a PCA church in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, just the, over the last couple of weeks, we've, uh, our, we have a, a uh, serving committee that has been doing surveys for calling every single member of the church personally and asking them uh, several questions saying, you know, what are your passions? Where, or where, where are you serving right now in the church? Um, where would you like to be serving? Mm. What are your passions? If you could serve and do anything, what would you want to do? And what are the, the roadblocks that are hindering you from doing that? And I just love the heart that our church has to, and you get this from, from the local body saying we want to see the kingdom grow and we want to serve our city. What can we do? You know, like Rush Dooney said in that quote earlier, like we want, we want to love people. We want to meet people's needs. What, what is your passion? My passion is for the homeless. What can, what, what can we do, you know, to, to, to serve them and to, uh, you know, form a committee and get sandwiches made and go deliver them at night or something, you know, like I just, you get that from the body where we have, we all have a similar mindset, a heart for those, who are lost um, to, uh, uh, you know, I, and even back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, with, with theology matters, if with a, with a, with a positive um, eschatological outlook on life, we're not just, you know, this homeless man who's starving, who hasn't eaten in two days on the side of the street. I'm not just worried that Jesus is going to come back any second. So I need to preach the gospel to him and get him converted on the spot. No, I'm going to serve him and I'm, he needs food. Before I mention, hey, do you know who Jesus is? I need to give him a sandwich because he's dying. It's serving people and what's the, you know, what's the best way to serve them and to love them. And as you're feeding them, you're getting to know them. Even if you just give them a sandwich and you walk away and you give someone else a sandwich, that's, that's being Christ to them. Um, so, but it's, it's being in a local body where you can, you have like-minded people who want, who are committed to bringing the kingdom, who are bringing the gospel, practically speaking, and and serving and loving others. Um, you don't get that. You don't get that outside the church. It doesn't mean you, it doesn't mean you can't do things. You know, you can't bring homeless people sandwiches on your own. But um, when uh, when multiple people are gathered together, um, you know, the Lord blesses that. And when you're working to bring His kingdom, um, it's 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 powerful what you can get done. That post mail. Yep. Colin, uh, while we're on this, why, why don't you send a shout out to uh, what church you go to, man, and, and why do you love it? I go to Christ Church Santa Clarita, and I love it because 
Dad Postmail. <laughs> Pastor's Dad Postmail. He uh sympathetic to theonomy. Um mm-hmm. actually my favorite thing about the church is probably how many kids there are. It's a, it's a family integrated service so the kids are all awesome. uh, you know making baby noise yep. during church and everybody loves it. It's great. It's a beautiful noise. There's the gospel growing right there. I love that. That's, <laughs> That's right. Awesome. <laughs> yep. Very cool, man. I'm a member of Grace Church of Dunedin here in Pinellas County, Florida, Tampa Bay area and Colin I, we have a family integrated service as well, and we have a lot of kids and babies, and I, I, it's awesome. I love it. I love hearing uh, the baby cry during the sermon. I, you know, I love seeing the kids sing, and um, it's just, you know, has a has a real covenantal heart. Um, what drew me to the church, first of all, we're a church plant. And I was part of the planning team, but um, the vision of the church was in the mission statement that they they brought to me, and the mission statement starts off with that. Uh, we are a community of changed people who are dedicated to uh, seeing a movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ to serve and renew the greater Dunedin area. And I just think that was so, it was so uh, on point and exactly what we want to do. We want to be out there, not just preaching the gospel in Dunedin, but we want to be serving. And I've, and over the, th- the three years I've been there, I've seen that. I've seen uh, there, there, there is a demographic of children in the public school system who are their names are given to us now because the teachers or administrators have a suspicion that they don't eat on the weekends unless they're there to get lunch at, and the breakfast that they serve at church or at I'm sorry at school very different than church but at school um, the you know the teachers there and the administration they they really fear that they don't have any food at home so we have a program called Pack a Snack where where we uh, basically send all these kids on Fridays with enough food for a couple meals on Saturday and Sunday. And that has been something so simple. It's really gotten the community involved. Other businesses in Dunedin have joined us. And once a week, we, we actually go, go to the House of Beer in downtown Dunedin, and we pack snacks for these kids. And that's what we do. And uh, you, you couple that with the gospel preach, being preached. Um, it's just really been been a really cool thing. So I know I talk too long, but I just, I really love my church and I wouldn't be uh, anything w- w- without that community. So that post mail, so yeah, the, that post mail is all about going to church yep. guys. It's yeah. all about, we, that's, that's, that's where you, that's where it starts. You know, that's where it starts. So anyway, all right, any, any closing thoughts, anything guys, any, anything, any, any, that post mail stories, just that post mail, bro. Mm-hmm. I'll give a shout out. Um, so we're we're kind of trying to build our website. Our vision for our website, datpostmill.com, 1L, um, is to be just a, a haven of resources on um, postmill, theonomy, uh, presuppositional apologetics, covenant theology, you know, Calvinism, reform theology. That's Gospel. what we want. Yeah. So if you guys have any questions, if you're new to this, you don't understand what this is. I know a lot of our listeners are already dat postmail, um, a lot of recon people. But uh, if you got questions, um, hit us up on Twitter, dat postmail, um, on Facebook. You can email us, dat postmail at gmail.com. Um, and uh, that's all on our website too. Contact to us. But uh, give us some questions. I, we're we're work, I'm working on building a page that's just going to be like a, a frequently asked questions on you know, what is theonomy? What about, how does it compare to Sharia? What, how do you, um, you know, live out dominion? What does that look like with evangelism? And um, what, you know, how do you uh, reconcile that post mill with, 
you know, this verse in Revelation or with this or that. You know, ask questions. We want to we want to have a discussion, and that's what we're here for. We're not just we're, it's not a top down approach. We're, we want to we want to preach the truth to the church and change hearts and change lives. And um, you know, we're all we're all continually reforming and uh, working on understanding God's word as much as we can day by day. So, if you got questions on on how we come to these conclusions and how we interpret scripture, just hit us up, give us questions. We'll answer you, whether it's on the podcast or on the website, we'll, uh, we'll try to get some information out to you guys. So, uh, don't be, don't be shy. We want this to be interaction. We want a dialogue here to, to work through this. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. <laughs> All right. See you guys next week. Cool. See ya. We're the sheep, but the king will protect us from the werewolf. And the meat, Jesus said that the earth they shall inherit. Some think it's getting worse, but how? Jesus removed the curse. He has dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Now he's reigning from heaven. May all the kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Psalm 72 11. This is an anthem. This song is not an apologetic. This is a song that lets you know Christ is king because I read it. If you want to debate, name a time place and we'll get it the progression of the kingdom of god is where my head is a post-millennial age is where we're headed christ is conquering the nations yeah i said it jesus the messiah brought the expected kingdom on time and as planned he is seated and reigning now his kingdom will grow in history through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the holy spirit the world will experience the transformational blessings the peace with god brings Jesus will return for the resurrection of the just and the unjust after, after all his enemies are put under his feet in victory. The last enemy is death.